0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where history and Jewish history meet. We are very, very pleased to have with us today, Professor Nicholas McDowell, who is the Professor of Early Modern Literature and Thought at the University of Exeter. Professor McDowell's research focuses on the literary, cultural, and intellectual history of the period of 1500 to 1750, with particular focus on the Civil War's of the 17th century. He is the author of The English Radical Imagination, Cultural Religion Revolution, 1630 to 1660, as well as Poetry and Allegiance in the English Civil Wars, Marvel and the Cause of Wit. Uh, Professor McDowell is also the co-editor of the Oxford Handbook on Milton. and Today, we will be discussing Professor McDowell's award-winning Poet of Revolution, The Making of John Milton. Uh, Deeply researched, as you can see, it's quite a comprehensive and lengthy book. Uh, Very enjoyable. Um, I purchased it online at Amazon. You can just go on to Amazon, Poet of Revolution, The Making of John Milton. Professor McDowell, just to begin a little bit about your background and how you became interested John Milton.
1: Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, yeah, sorry, I just cut out there for a second. But uh, um, yeah, well, thanks. I um, so I, I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland uh, during the seventies and eighties, uh, early nineties, uh, during the so-called Troubles uh, in Northern Ireland. That gave me a very strong sense uh, of. The issues of religious and political conflict uh, growing up in a, in a sort of almost a, a, a semi-civil war situation, a kind of low-level civil war situation at times. So I've always had a great interest in the idea of civil war uh, and about the cultural manifestations, I suppose, of religious and political conflict. Uh, now that when I went to, I, I, I studied at Cambridge as an undergraduate English, and I read Milton's Paradise Lost there. I was kind of, you know, blown away by what a great poem it was, but I had very little sense of the context in which it was written, we just really read it for, you know, its beauty as poetry, and then when I went to study for my uh, master's uh, at Oxford. um, I was introduced by a great tutor there uh, Nigel Smith uh, to Milton's prose works, uh, which I never really knew existed. Um, And suddenly I I realized that Milton himself had been writing in the midst of a civil war in England uh, in a time of uh, religious and political conflict. Um, And a lot of his work um, can be placed in that context. A lot of his uh, poetry also derives from uh, that sense of of conflict uh, that he lived through in the English Civil War. And that's really why I think I've become a poet of revolution is a book that tries to if you like, do both things, which is try, try to appreciate Milton as a poet, uh, as a literary figure, but place the writing of the poetry within uh, the detailed context of um, the traumatic and, and, and really quite major political uh, events that he lived through in his, in his own lifetime.
0: So if you can simply set, set the scene of the political situation in England, as Milton was born, grew up in the early 17th century, just a bit of a timeline and a general overview.
1: Yeah, so so Milton was born in 1608. Um, now, the Reformation in, in, in England, uh, this shift from uh, Catholic to a Protestant state had obviously happened in the 16th century, and uh, uh, but yeah, there's been a number of, uh, you know, Henry the Edith shifted England to a, to a Protestant uh, regime at the Reformation. There'd been a bit of toing and froing between Catholic and Protestant monarchs until Protestantism was firmly entrenched as, as the national religion by Elizabeth I. So um, when Milton is born, um, Elizabeth I has died and James I has taken over, also a Protestant monarch, had come from Scotland to take over. Um, and... At that period, uh, religious war between Protestants and Catholics was raging in, in Europe. Uh, 1618 was the beginning of the 30 years uh, war in Europe, uh, very bloody conflicts between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, England, under James I, more or less stayed out of that, but it had its own um, particular issues, one being the gunpowder plot of 1605, a, a Catholic attempt to blow up, uh, famously, James I, in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, and Milton himself writes a, a few poems. Uh, actually in Latin, uh, about that event, which is still, of course, commemorated in England, and it was very much a a major anniversary uh, in Milton's lifetime. Um, So by the time Milton Milton goes to school in London, uh, he's born in London, he goes to school, St. Paul's school, he's born into quite a wealthy family, his father is a successful businessman, he's not an aristocrat, uh, but he's wealthy, and he has tutors, private tutors, uh, at home, even before he goes to St. Paul's school. Um, and then he goes to Cambridge in 1625. Um, now that's also the year in which James I dies and his son Charles I takes over, and that's really the moment um, in which England begins its descent into the Civil War, which breaks out in, in 1642. Um, Charles I um, is not like his father in, in the to the extent that that he's he's much more uh, reserved less interested in bringing uh, the different factions together as James had been. Um, and increasingly, he promotes, Charles promotes churchmen who are divisive uh, or seen as divisive by most uh, Orthodox Protestants in England in the period, um, uh, including a, a churchman called William Lord, who becomes Archbishop of Can- Canterbury. Uh, and Laud, with Charles's support introduces increasingly ceremonial types of religion changes the, 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 the Protestant format uh, of services uh, and the, 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 the um, visual form of church, church worship in England. And that's one of the major uh, religious flashpoints that leads to civil war. The this, this situation in the 1630s becomes increasingly fraught. There are political reasons, too, that Parliament is unhappy with Charles I and the way he um, raises funds uh, and rules. He rules without a Parliament for uh, nearly all of the 1630s. Um, so increasingly, there are political issues as well, deep, deep, seated religious and political issues um, that Milton lives through in the 1630s, which lead to the outbreak of Civil War in 1642. Uh, and my book, Poet of Revolution, really focuses particularly on that. It's the first part of, of a two-volume intellectual biography of Milton, and the first part really focuses in that period up to 1642 and the outbreak of Civil War, tries to place Milton very much in these complicated uh, events. So how does uh,
0: Milton's political views develop?
1: Well, that, that's a big question. That's that's a, that's something I'm trying tried to intervene uh, an issue a, a controversial issue I've tried to intervene in uh, with the book. Um, so, basically, up to this point, there've been two major uh, biographical positions on Milton, um, represented by two earlier biographies, really of the of the 20th century. Um, there's a very voluminous biography published in 2000 uh, by the great Harvard scholar, Barbara Lewolski, uh, which argued that Milton had been a radical from almost, you know, at the beginning of his life. He was always, uh, she, she presents him as always someone who um, opposed monarchy, it was essentially a Republican believer, uh, which is unusual in the period, uh, uh, you know, certainly in the 1620s uh, when Milton's growing up. And someone who becomes increasingly more radical as uh, the Civil War breaks out, Uh, a Republican, a strong Protestant Puritan figure um, whose radicalism is steady throughout. And so his his eventual support uh, of the execution of King Charles I, which takes place in in 1649, huge, probably the most significant event, certainly of the 17th century in England, and perhaps... Some people would argue one of the most significant events ever to take place in in British history. Uh, And Milton supports that in 1649. So Lewolsky very much sees his whole life as leading up to that point. Um, The other viewpoint um, that was put forward in 2008 by another big biography uh, by Gordon Campbell and Tom Corns uh, was that Milton was actually quite conservative, conservative young man who had very little interest in uh, the kind of more radical politics uh, of the day in his youth. And somehow around the late 1630s, early 1640s, he becomes radicalized. Um, and they sort of leave this, this position. I mean, how, how he becomes radicalized a bit open to question. They suggest, you know, just the deteriorating situation in England changed his mind about things. He traveled in Europe, which we might talk about and that, maybe that changed his mind as well. Um, there are a few encounters that his family has with the new uh, regime under Charles and Archbishop Laud. Uh, in which they try to intervene in, in uh, church affairs that are linked to the Milton family. But essentially there's no great reason why he's radicalized, but he becomes radicalized. So I was a bit dissatisfied with both these narratives. Um, neither of them added up to me. Uh, so what I try and do in Poet Re- of Revolution is really offer a, a intellectually and uh, artistically, if you like, uh, comprehensible development of Milton's mind uh, trying to explain why he might have, and I do believe he shifted um, with events, his, his ideas shifted, so I don't believe he was a radical always and just became more and more radical, but that he developed, he, was, he did develop a radical position, but this is comprehensible in terms both of events that took place around him in England in the period and also his own mind, his own ambitions as a poet uh, and as an intellectual.
0: And how does his religious views come into play with his political
1: views? Well, I think it's, it's. Uh, I mean, Milton's known uh, as a strongly anti-Catholic writer. And that's true, although also not unusual in, in, in 17th century England. And a lot of the religious dispute um, that I've mentioned earlier, um, the growing divide in England between those who felt that Charles um, and the church Uh, under Archbishop Laud were going in a more Catholic direction, and moving away from the Protestant Reformation. Uh, And Milton was certainly one of those who um, considered uh, Laudian reforms under Archbishop Laud uh, as being closer to bringing the the English Church closer to Catholicism. And that was was key to the conflict that broke out. But Milton himself, I mean, it's hard to sort of, uh, before the 1640s, certainly, he doesn't really tell us his, his religious views because he doesn't write in prose, for the most part. He has a series of letters to friends and so on, but he's more interested in those letters in poetry um, and in in learning languages and in reading history. And nearly all his writing before 1642 is in the form of poetry. Uh, And and also, almost by its nature, poetry is is bound by genre, by tradition, uh, rather than by kind of direct political argument. And so really it's a matter of reconstructing, uh, as I try to do in the book, the development of his religious and political views. Um, You know, there's nothing to suggest in his, say, teenage years that he's a particularly vociferous Puritan um, who, you know, there's nothing to suggest he's more puritanical than other people, particularly in the period. Um, And it's really only, I, I suggest, as you get into the 1630s and the situation deteriorates. Uh, and the threat to the Protestant church, the perceived threat to the Protestant church becomes more serious that he develops um, what you might call a polemical position on all of this. Um, earlier, you know, in his poetry, so his poetry on the gunpowder plot, for instance, he does present the Pope as a kind of demonic figure uh, and as, you know, trying to to blow up the English monarch. Uh, But that's fairly standard stuff. Uh, There's nothing unusual uh, about that, and it doesn't in itself suggest any any great uh, kind of radicalism at that time. Um, So I think the story I try to tell is one of very much of dynamism in Milton's mind. He's always developing ideas. And indeed, you know, as we, we might go on to discuss, and certainly as I go on to discuss in the second volume, which I'm working on at the moment, uh, he actually developed some quite heretical ideas, um, which don't fit in with either Puritanism uh, or Laudianism or any of the standard conventional uh, denominations uh, of the period. And indeed, you know, he has ideas about the Trinity, uh, about um, the relationship between the body and the spirit, which are really, which as they developed during the 1630s and into the 1640s and beyond, are really quite unusual and heterodox.
0: When does Milton start writing poetry? It seemed that you alluded uh, to the position that maybe he was ambitious, an ambitious poet. Mm. Did he start, how did that develop?
1: Well, I mean, he's, he's writing, I mean, so his first volume of poems is published in 1645, but he's been writing poetry at least since he was a teenager. Um, so some of the poems in the 1645 poems, including actually two uh, translations of two psalms. Uh, or both he, he writes above them done when I was at the age of 15 so he's very careful to, to actually put his age onto a lot of these poems so the reader gets a sense of his uh, early virtuosity as a teenage poet um, and he's very careful to kind of present a, a uh, development of his poetic talents um, through through his childhood and um, the one thing about Milton and any reader of Milton uh, you know, will immediately see this is that he has a very um, sort of dominating personality, um, and it's very hard to escape. And this can be a problem for students of Milton these days who uh, find this kind of personality somewhat um, terrifying, uh, or, or you know find find it somehow off putting. Is that he's very he's he's almost um, supernaturally sure of himself that he will become he is destined to become if he makes the right moves he is destined to become the great English poet. And will write the great national epic uh, to to stand alongside um, Homer uh, in in Greek uh, and Virgil in Latin. And he, of course he does do this. So you know, <laughs> that's the remarkable thing. You know, it, it's the most it's the most amazing sort of uh you know claim ever made because he does actually succeed in doing this with Paradise Lost, his great um Christian epic. Um and he does have moments of doubt. Um he has I mean I'm, I in the in the book I spent quite a lot of time on his letters to friends because sometimes he presents himself as a kind of almost uh, isolated prophetic figure but that's not the case when he was young he had um several very close friends and they they talked intently about classic classical uh, literature and about the writing and poetry. And he does have moments in those letters where he's worried that he's not fulfilling uh, he's not fulfilling fast enough. Um the, the poetic ambitions uh, that he set himself but for the most part what's amazing about milton is that he is so sure of himself from an early age and he's um, absolutely saturated in latin and greek poetry um, he also learns italian writes poetry in italian as a as a, as a young man uh, he also um, I, I i would suggest we'll maybe come to this also you know he seems to have learned some hebrew either from tutors or at school and tr- translates directly from, from the Psalms, from, from Greek, sorry, from Hebrew into Greek and from Hebrew into English. Um, so his, his life is really one of, of um, his early life is one of becoming a kind of virtuoso uh, intellectual and poet who reads as widely as he can, learns as many languages as he can to make himself into um, the great epic poet that he he eventually sees himself becoming. And in this respect, he's very much in line with humanist ideas about literature and language uh, in the Renaissance, Um, and the idea that by um, developing eloquence uh, and poetic eloquence, one becomes a better person. Uh, There's a very strong link in Renaissance humanism between eloquence, uh, rhetoric and morality. Um, and it fits fits with Protestant ideas of encountering the Bible through the original languages as well. Um, so, yeah, Milton is absolutely suffused with that. In many ways, he's the last, perhaps the last great example of a Renaissance man, um, someone who tries to um, encompass all the disciplines or as many languages as he can uh, to turn himself into uh, one of the great poets of his age.
0: And he writes primarily in what language? It seems like. You again allude to the fact that he might have written poetry in different languages.
1: Perhaps. Absolutely. So um, Latin, oh. Latin, Latin, is the, Latin, Latin is the language. Yeah, Latin is the language of, of education in the sixteenth and seventeenth century. So at, at university, uh, students uh, all all male students, of course, only men admitted to university in the period, they would uh, be expected to converse in Latin. Uh, with their tutor and with each other in front of their tutor, and the, the, the standard language of composition is Latin. So a lot of his early poems, the 1645 poems, his first volume is split into two sections. One is uh, vernacular, uh, English uh, and Italian, and the second section is, is Latin and, and Greek, um, and he splits the, 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 the volume into two parts. So again, as I said earlier, it's really a display of his virtuosity as a poet and his control of those languages. And uh, he's considered to be a very good Latin poet uh, as well. Uh, so he, you know, he does ex, ex, uh, excel in Latin as well. Um, I think it's clear, though, he, he makes a decision early in his life that he is going to English will be the language that he eventually writes in, though, because he thinks that he to be um, to compare with Homer and Virgil, who are the two great classical poets that he sees himself competing with he must write in English because he can't, he, he can't compete with them in those two languages, but he can become the preeminent poet in his own language. And then that he's also influenced by re- great Renaissance poets like Dante uh, writing in Italian, uh, one of his great heroes. Um, he sees himself as you know, beta- you know, becoming an English version of Dante, someone who writes the great vernacular uh, epic in their own language.
0: So he's not looking back, for example, at Chaucer competitor and in, in saying I, I will be the next Chaucer or I will I will surpass Chaucer in the English language
1: well actually he's, he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking he's actually a, quite a, quite interested in Chaucer because one of the things he does with um he does spend a lot of time thinking about past English writers but he tends to think about them interestingly in religious terms as much as as poetic terms so Chaucer although Chaucer was a, of course a Catholic because the Reformation hadn't happened yet Uh, Milton, because he, he Milton tended to see great poets as automatically somehow proto-Protestant, so he does sort of talk about Chaucer, but when he cites Chaucer, it is to make the point that Chaucer was an anti-clerical, and that Chaucer mocked friars and monks, Uh, and he's more interested in that. Another great uh, figure a little bit later in the 16th century is Edmund Spencer, who wrote the great epic poem The Fairy Queen um, for Elizabeth I, and he sees Spencer, who certainly was a Protestant, uh, quite a, a vociferous Protestant, he sees him as his main uh, forebear rather than Chaucer uh, and, and Chaucer he doesn't spend so much time. Uh, thinking about it, but certainly he sees himself someone like Spencer is provides him with a model that he can, you know, exceed and go beyond. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think also, he, you know, he sees, and we might come back to this as well, he sees history as partly a sort of series of revelations you know, towards what he regards as the Protestant truth about Christianity. And so he, that, that's always, you know, he, I don't think Milton really ever divorces poetry and religion. Uh, that, that's one of my the arguments in my book, that there's there's long been a sort of um, fissure, if you like, in Milton studies, where pe- people like to see him just either as a poet, like the kind of figure I encountered when I was an undergraduate. Here's a great poet. who's only interested in poetry. Or other people who say, well, no, here's this guy who's actually fascinated by politics and religion. Uh, the kind of person I encountered when I was postgraduate. And I think that's, both of those are true. You know, the, the whole figure, uh, you, need to, you need to see his poetry in a political and religious context, and you need to see his political and religious writings in the context of his ambition to be a poet. The two the, the, the things are not separable. Um, and indeed, as I go on to argue in the book towards the end of the book, I think one of the reasons he becomes radicalized and and supports parliament in the english civil war when the war breaks out against charles I is actually not to do with religion it's actually to do with poetry um you know it's not it's not the kind of theological doctrines particularly of um you know laudians and puritans that interest him it is his fascination with the idea that to write a great poem you need to live in in a religiously free society you need a society in which Uh, there's a certain amount of tolerance of different religious positions there's a certain amount of liberty to write about what you want to write about and so he sees say in in italy um catholic italy he sees that as it has having declined from the great you know figures of dante for instance he sees a decline in in counter-reformation italy into kind of tyranny suppression of ideas suppression of um intellectual innovation and of literature itself so so for me, you know, the, the the whole poetic ambition and the increasing political and religious radicalization go together.